Welcome. I'm Paul Bishop, your host for this installment of Six Gun Justice Conversations. These are bonus downloads where my co-host Richard Prosh or I get to hang around the virtual Six Gun Justice podcast corral, talking with friends and fellow writers who are also fans of the Western genre. With me today is my buddy Hawk Hawkheim, who has just finished writing his latest Johann Gunther adventure, China Alamo, the next entry into what has become one of my favorite Western series. Hawk is a former military police patrolman and investigator, a former Texas patrol officer and detective, and a former private investigator. During his career spanning three decades, he's investigated more than 1,000 crimes and arrested nearly as many suspects. Currently, he continues his exploits around the world as a martial arts instructor specializing in hand, stick, knife, and gun combatives and self-defense survival. He's also found time to write numerous how-to manuals, nonfiction books, and a fistful of fiction thrillers and westerns. Hello, friend. How are you today? I am fine coming to you from North Central Texas. How long have you lived in Texas? I grew up in New York City area on the Hudson River, but the New Jersey side, and my family's all been in New York City forever. I just couldn't stand it. So I graduated high school (laughs) and myself and two friends on motorcycles took off. And in my case, never to return again, except for a couple of short visits. That was 1971. And so we went north, we went south. We lived that lifestyle of being a bum, basically camping out and stopping and working somewhere. And we thought that a stay in Dallas, Texas area in the winter would be a warm spot, but it really wasn't. There are terrible ice storms down here and so forth. We had a plan to get on a freighter and go to Australia and do all these great things. But I got married the first time and I got stuck here. I'm getting so old now that I I forget her name. That's how long ago it was. But anyway, from there, I went in the Army overseas and in Oklahoma and then returned back to Texas. So I got here in 1972, left and came back, and I've been here ever since. Tell me a little bit about your time in the military. You joined the Army, and how long before you ended up in the military police? Oh, I joined up to be in the military police because even back in the 70s, it was very difficult for certainly a stranger Yankee on a motorcycle to be hired in the traditional Texas law enforcement. So I wasn't getting anywhere to speak of. And I worked security. I was a guard at different locations and stuff, going to college. And then I just realized I got to go into the Army. I signed up for the military police and went to the military basic training, military police academy, and went to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and then Korea. Was the military police everything you expected it to be? I will say that it's the college I went to. During the course of that time, I was a general investigator, a narcotics investigator, and I worked patrol. Fort Sill, Oklahoma is a city by itself. It has everything a city has. Unlike the third world that I was in in South Korea, everything that can happen to you, being shot at, being in fights, working all these different cases, probably happened to me the first time up at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. I teach around there once in a while and I drive by it. I think I'm going to go on base to look around. And then I never can make that left turn onto Fort Sill Boulevard because basically every bad thing that can happen to you the first time happened there. I have the same problem with Denton, the city I worked in, the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Every street corner has a bad memory to me, just about. Oh, that happened here. 
oh, this guy's dead here, that happened. And so I just get a little depressed when I have to drive through that city. And I often do to see my old friends and stuff. So the military experience was absolutely valuable in getting that on-the-job training. Because if you survive it the first time, you're better able to handle it the next time and the next time because there's always going to be a next time. And sometimes you learn how to avoid those fights. Oh, yeah. That's a big deal. Now more than ever. I always say if I was involved in hiring police in our modern times, but even back then, I would be looking for how charming they are. That would be a high factor in my assessment because I happen to know the gift of gab or the ability to be charming and talk to people and interact is a vital part of this job. Whether you're just walking a beat or driving a patrol car or certainly as a detective, But anyway, that's one of the first things I would look for in a new person would be just how charming can they be? Even when I started in the 70s, they were pushing working schedules and shifts and so forth to get all these people a minimum of a two-year degree. Once you got out of the Army, did you immediately apply to Texas law enforcement? Yes, I did. I was not interested in a gigantic organization like the Army is. And so I really didn't want to go to Houston. I didn't want to be in Dallas. And if you join the FBI, you could spend your entire career in fingerprinting, which would be a nightmare for me. And so I said, I'm just going to find a middle-sized city and go from there. And I started applying to different places. And where I was persona non grata as a biker from New York City, I was suddenly this veteran military police person, and everyone wanted me. The particular day I was hired, other agencies had hired me also. So it's a big difference about the Army experience. And now you get the pick of where you want to go and you make that choice. Yes. And I went with Denton that's right on top of Dallas and Fort Worth, and it was cowboy. It was a wild western place. Of course, you certainly know Los Angeles was the wild west. It certainly was when I came on in the late 70s. Denton was a wilder West than the wild West people think of. Now, of course, I guess it's 40 years later or something. The city is just a very civilized bedroom community and has everything you'd want there. And it's a little boring. But in police work, boring is good, especially when you get older. Where in that Army Texas law enforcement career did you start getting into the martial arts and actually how it applies on the street? When I first came to Texas, I started in Ed Parker Kempo Karate. There weren't many schools in 1970, 71, 72. So I started there, and I've always been interested for some unknown reason. I guess like people are interested in painting or tennis or golf. I've always been interested in fighting. And of course, in the military police, there was training and there was boxing. So I was always doing something when I returned to Texas, I was doing karate and jujitsu and always pursuing the next best thing for reality, which was very difficult to find. And through many years of being frustrated and trying to find the next best thing, the next best thing, I decided the only shot at this is I'm going to have to invent the next best thing myself, which is why I got so in-depth in handstick knife gun combatives. When you talk about handstick knife gun combative, What is the biggest difference between what actually goes on in a dojo and what goes on in the street? Is it a mindset difference? Is it a technique difference or what? They're detached by the very nature of the clothing. I have a, a rule that I try to follow is reduce the abstract. 
It's impossible to do completely, but if you can get it in the forefront of your brain, you can set up training that way. And of course, the systems are like their own little cults. They're very one-dimensional. A ground fighter just ground fights. A boxer just boxes. You're in the wrong clothes. You should be, it's the who, I, where, when, how, and why. Who do you think you're really going to be fighting? What is that fight going to be like? Where is it going to be? What are you wearing? You're not going to be barefoot. You're not going to wear a boxing glove. You won't have a mouthpiece. You won't be doing all these different things that are not related. And the evolution of that has achieved in the mixed martial arts we see in the UFC because there's just two guys trying to beat each other up and there's no extra frill, no extra anything. And even then, it's still a sport. They'll get tap outs. You and I know you chase a criminal down an alleyway or something, you jump on him, you get him in a submission hold. As soon as you let him go, he continues to fight. So a submission hold is a very disappointing thing. That's why God made handcuffs. And so there are big differences. And I've spent a lot of time trying to cut out the extras, avoid the system worship, which gets in the way of just trying to learn how to really fight. Because there is no tap out on the street. Exactly. There's no second round in the street fight. It's 30 seconds of hell. And it's funny how long that 30 seconds lasts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right? I mean, time is. expands. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You've got help on the way. They arrive within 20 seconds. And your first question to them is, what took you so long? You if so you're long. sitting there getting your butt kicked. You corner this criminal. You have a gun. He, he's frozen there. Get on the phone. Call the police and call a pizza. The pizza will come first. <laughs> when did you start writing? Was it as an outlet for what you had been through on the streets, a cathartic process, or did you just be a big reader and decide that you wanted to write? I've been a big reader, but I've been you know, hypnotized by the story. You go back to the caveman telling stories around the campfire as a history-repeating thing before there was any writing but I've always been like people like golf and tennis or whatever. I'm hypnotized by good stories. I was drawing stick figure stories when I was four years old. And the opportunity to write where you'd think it counted or where anybody would be reading it came years later when I took a police report to a small newspaper in my city. And I asked the guy right out, I said, would you be interested in a column about politics, policing, etc.? This is like 1978. And so the guy said, yeah, that would be a good thing. So I started writing a weekly column there, became very popular, and he didn't care what I wrote about. So once in a while, I'd do a history story. I would do like a Paul Harvey kind of thing. Then I happened to be reading this extensive, thick Spanish-translated biography of Pancho Villa, and I stumbled upon the fact that there were like eight amazing stories of Pancho Villa escaping with his life in battles and so forth. So I mentioned it to him. I said, this could be eight weeks. I could do one of these stories every week. He said, go ahead. We did it. It was very popular. He said to me, why don't you make a book out of it? Because they did cookbooks and a couple of books here and there. A very primitive set. They somehow cranked them out at this print shop that they had for the newspaper. And so I did that. And that's kind of what got me going. And that first book was The Great Escapes of Pancho Villa. You and I shared the enthusiasm for the professionals movie, which for some reason never leaves my mind. It's just a perfect film. And so that time period that we have Big Jake, 
The Wild Bunch, and a variety of other movies that capture my attention. The start of it all, of course, is my obsession with Have Gun, Will Travel and Paladin. I'm so old, I remember when it was on prime time. My dad and I would watch it on Saturday mornings. You were talking about fathers and sons watching Westerns on a prior show that you guys did. And this example of that, and for some reason, I'm not happy with every episode, but they had to make 36 of them a year. Can you imagine that rat race? The casting, the writing, the props, the scenery. And so every fifth or sixth episode, they seem to capture lightning in a jar. And the format withstands even lesser plots in my mind. And so that sort of character stuck with me. And I got very down on the idea of people being entertained and reading and why should I care? And I just had this epiphany that people know about the Civil War more from Gone with the Wind than they actually do their eighth grade history class. And that the power of the story is tremendous, not just in the fact that you can learn lessons of life. And I got reinvigorated like 2004 with Gunther. I knew some writers. We started a writer's group. I said, I'm going to write something. And it's going to be not in the typical time period. I was writing something the other day that Sam Peckinpah and Brian Keith and that, was it The Loner? I can't remember that TV show. They both agreed they would never have the same saloon in the story, that the saloons would look extremely real and crappy like they were. And so these are the things that kind of inspire me, these guys saying these things and hearing these old stories about their creations and stuff. And I decided I'm going to pick this time period. Germany sent all kinds of immigrants throughout all America, but Texas is loaded with them. To include there is a hawk on Texas that I discovered when I got down here on a map where part of my ancestors in 1880-something came here and started a stagecoach station outside of Houston, which we've seen, and that's a kick. And so I wanted somebody different. I didn't want Gunsmoke, although I love Gunsmoke, especially the half-hour episodes that are black and white. They created the motif, the model for everything else. You and I have talked about this before. I discovered you through your book, My Gun is My Passport. I just love the title of that. I started reading it and I went, this is like Fargo, the series that I love most of all and so many other Western fans revere by John Benteen. When we talked about it, you weren't aware of it at that time. But for me, Johann Gunther is the next version of Fargo. And it really resonates with me as Gunther doesn't stay in the Wild West. We have him traveling to Afghanistan, and we have him now in China with the latest book, China Alamo. How did that idea of having him go to worldwide places come about? I've always been fascinated by the adventures of Gary Cooper, the Texas Ranger, who hunts a guy in Canada and gets hooked up in that movie with the Royal Mounted Police, taking that Western ethic hero and placing him in in different countries and cultures. And then he responds with that Texas or the Western ethic. And I want epics. Not every one of the Gunther stories are epics. My goal is to, he is the post-Western gunfighter, pre-noir detective in that time period, 1900 to about 1920 kind of thing. And so I was interested in that. I said, what are these guys like? What did they do? 
Many of them were detectives, and they have a private agency, and they solve people's problems. Very much like Paladin, who wasn't just a gunfighter, he was very ethical. So anyway, I'm fascinated by the big epic, thinking and contemplating, where can Gunther go? He was the first gunfighter in Afghanistan, sent on a mission. And now with the China Alamo, it's 1900, and three American medical doctors graduate from their college, and they decide to have a big Chinese dinner on the beautiful docks of San Francisco, and they get Shanghai, which is always an interesting thing. And they get taken to China because they discover that they're doctors, and then they're thrust into the early parts of the Boxer Rebellion. The three families of the doctors are rich, and they want action. They want their sons recovered. And so Gunther, Vice President Roosevelt, knows from Cuba, is called in from the Philippines. And then in the China Alamo, there's an exciting scene of him fighting during the Philippine insurrection. He meets his sidekick, who is a little Bruce Lee Cato, is Jefe, his Filipino scout friend that become lifelong partners in the detective agency. Well, anyway, Roosevelt assigns him to rescue the three doctors in Peking, and the adventure begins. They have gun runners who have seen the doctors. They are mysterious characters. One of them is discovered to be an AWOL general from the army. We've got a cast of ragtag characters on this journey, and they rescue the doctors in exciting scenes, and there's only one place to go, and that's inside the legation embassies during the giant 55-day siege, which is the China Alamo. And so about 45, 50% of the book takes place in the horrors that was never really captured or advertised, where they were surrounded and attacked constantly, cannon fire, sniper fire, etc., And that great movie, 55 Days in Peking, is also an inspiration for me with Heston and David Niven. And they didn't touch the real things. Everything that happens to Gunther in this book actually happened. And I've had to pour through reminiscences and biographies and history books to discover what happened in that time period. I just love the story. It's a movie I want to see. It's a book I want to read, which is why I write all these stories. And it's got a lot of stuff in it. And to me, if it doesn't have a touch of humanity, of reality and people and their emotional experience, it's shallow. So I always try to pepper these stories with that kind of touch. And for me, this is a movie that happened in my head while I was reading it. It is my favorite of your Gunther novels. It was a book that I thought about after I finished, and I went back and I read several other parts of it again because I wanted to see the way that you wrote it and pulled it all together. It was very impressive, and I think it's going to be a big seller when it gets released here shortly, and it's got a fantastic cover, and the story inside is just sublime. I think it's going to really resonate with readers. It's high adventure. (laughs) And... Of course, it's we've had Cowboy in Africa and Cowboy here, Cowboy. This is Cowboy in China. And I'm glad to hear that because when you start writing, you get into it and you say, God, is this going to be any good? (laughs) You get so lost in the process. But I'm very excited that it's coming out soon. There's a saying, you give a man a book and he'll read it for a day. If you teach a man to write a book, he'll spend the rest of his life being insecure. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty good.
because we never know when we're writing something, whether it's going to be any good, whether it's going to work, whether anybody's going to like it or read it. Yeah. Uh, I think that has certainly a grain of truth in it. Now, is Gunther going to return again at some point in the future? I know that's a tough question because you've only just finished this latest adventure, but do you have Gunther in your head or do you have another book down the line you want to do? Gunther has definitely got a future. And the, the next one tentatively in my head is called The Horse Killers. And I won't reveal too much about it, but a bunch of Texas cattle and horse people are ordered to supply pre-World War I thousands and thousands of horses. They don't want to get involved in the war, but they're supplying them. And mysteriously, these horses are dying. And they're sick and they go overseas and they spread this disease. And this group of rich horse salesmen hire Gunther to find out what the heck is going on. I won't go much further than that. However, as you and I were talking a week or so ago, through Wolfpack, my Jack Kellogg detective story, Be Bad Now, is really selling well. And we had discussed the fact, maybe I need to write another Kellogg story because I got one in my head. You can certainly do that, but I want another Gunther somewhere oh, down the line here. There's several more. And you've met the uh, character Susanna Crippler, if you've read The China Alamo. She's going to appear in desperate trouble in about 1925 with Chicago and Kansas City gangsters. And out of the blue, she's going to ask Gunther for help. They're harassing her and her cattle business, her restaurant business, and so forth. And so the old flame situation is going to happen. That's just one story down the line. But yes, Gunther will keep going. Hawk, thank you for being with me today. We're going to let our readers catch up with the Johann Gunther in China Alamo before we start getting them all excited about the books to come. But I really appreciate you, and I think you've done a tremendous job with this novel. I thank you very much. That's great news to hear. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the Six Gun Justice website at sixgunjustice.com for information on prior Six Gun Justice conversations, Six Gun Justice speed lessons, and full-length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, along with regularly updated book reviews, articles, and interviews covering all aspects of the Western genre. Until next time, be kind to others, be kind to yourself, and keep your horse headed for home. Adios. I'm out of here. Let's ride.